0: following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Please open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 9, book of Acts chapter 9, and uh, we're going to read verses 20 through 22, Acts chapter 9, we're going to be looking at most of the chapter, but we're going to read just verses 20 through 22. And once you have uh, located Acts chapter 9 in your Bibles, I want to invite you once again to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect Holy Word. God has revealed Himself to us through His Spirit. These words are God-breathed. Acts 9, beginning in verse 20. And immediately, He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we gather because we believe that Jesus is the Christ. Because you use someone like Saul, someone who hated Christianity, who hated the church, who devoted his life to stopping the gospel. But Lord, you saved that man. And you sent him to the Gentiles. You sent him to the nations. You sent him to people like us to proclaim the good news of the gospel so that we could be saved, so that we could gather in the name of Jesus on this very day, 2,000 years later. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we ask you now to speak your truth to us, to transform us, to save us, Lord, I pray for anyone in this room right now, if anyone in this room does not know this wonderful Savior that we have been singing about, Lord, my prayer is that through this story of you converting the most hardened sinner, Lord, I pray that you would melt the hearts of anyone opposed to Christ today, and that you would bring them to repentance and faith. Lord, you are powerful to save, and we desire for you to save all people. No one here is here by accident, God. In your sovereign providence, you have brought every single person here to hear the gospel. Work your will. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When you have five kids, many of them who play sports, you find yourself in fast food drive-throughs way more than you'd like to admit. You don't get a lot of like parent of the year awards when you're lined up and well, we have plenty of options in LaGrange, that's for sure. For me picking a fast food restaurant, there's really only two criteria. Number one, how long am I gonna have to wait? As I drive down Highway 53, you can pretty much see from the road. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. The second criteria is can I get a kid full on $5 or less? That's increasingly becoming difficult. But if my, if my only criteria were number one, where, where can I go where we don't have to wait very long, we would probably eat every single fast food meal at KFC. Because every time I drive by, it is a ghost town. How does that place even stay open? (laughs) And that's really strange, guys. It's Kentucky Fried Chicken. In Kentucky. And people with Kentucky on their shirts and on their license tags just drive right by it. On our way to Taco Bell, south of the border. I I need you to know something. It is not like that in other countries. I've been to China. I've been to Peru. In both of those places, when you tell somebody you're from Kentucky, the first thing you hear is, Kentucky Fried Chicken? Yes, that's where we're from. And and immediately you've made a connection. It is. Did you know this? KFC is the world's second largest fast food chain. When Chinese students come to the University of Kentucky every year, our church in Lexington, Ashland Avenue Baptist Church, takes a trip to Corbin, Kentucky, to the first KFC, and we fill up church vans full of Chinese students who want to go. They've been eating KFC their whole lives. Now, it used to be a bigger deal. When I was a kid, I can remember my family driving into that drive through getting a huge bucket of chicken, two sides, and biscuits, All I wanted were the biscuits, really. And we would go home and put that on the table. Man, that was good. But you know, KFC's always had a story. Colonel Sanders discovering his original recipe of 11 herbs and spices, selling it at his roadside restaurant in the middle of the Great Depression, walking around with his white hair and his dark-rimmed glasses and his goatee and his white suit and his string tie right? It's finger-licking good. And when you went to KFC, it wasn't just fried chicken. You were getting a story. You're getting Southern hospitality. You ate at KFC. You were a part of that story. That's what good companies do, by the way. Good companies don't just tell you, hey, come get our product, but good companies sell you on a story, All of the biggest companies that you can name today have those stories. Founding stories. Companies like Amazon and Microsoft and Apple and Google, they all tell stories about poor geniuses working out of their garage and then taking over the world. Stories. We open up our Bibles and we recognize that Christianity is built upon founding stories as well. You know the founding story. The founding story is one that we rehearse every single year. The story of a Savior coming to us, born in a virgin's womb from the Holy Spirit, living a sinless life, dying on a sinner's cross, even though He didn't deserve it because He was making atonement for the sins of the world. And then three days later, being raised from the dead, sending to the Father, where He is at this moment interceding on behalf of His people. But He hasn't left us alone, no. He has sent us His very Spirit who guides us and leads us and allows us to persevere until His return, where He will come and judge all things and establish His kingdom, consummate His kingdom forever in a new heavens and a new earth, where there will be no more sin, No more death, no more suffering, no more tears. That's our founding story. We base everything on that founding story. But there's also individual founding stories. There's that founding story, and then there's my founding story. And there's your founding story. We like to call this in Southern Baptist lingo, testimonies. Why don't you share your testimony with me? And you know what I mean when I say that if you've been around the church any length of time. If I tell you, please share your testimony, what I'm asking you to do is is share with me your story of how that Savior connected with your life and saved you and brought you in to His kingdom. What is your founding story? How did you meet Jesus Christ? Well, this morning when we open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 9, we are encountering a very, very well-known founding story. A very significant founding story. And I want to explain to you why it's so significant. This is the conversion story of the Apostle Paul. And he's going to be Saul in our passage. But it's the same person, trust me. It's a Saul story. One of the reasons why it is so important is because it is such a dramatic conversion. Saul, you're going to learn why. Saul, this sinner, this hardened sinner, he is pursued by Jesus and he is saved. And so there's this drama to it. There's this idea that if Saul can be saved, anybody can be saved. That's important to remember, church. If Saul can be saved, even you can be saved. There's another reason why it's really important for us. It's really important for us because when Saul is converted, when he is pursued by the sovereign, gracious God and melted underneath his grace, it is the beginning of worldwide Christianity. Because Saul, or Paul, is God's chosen instrument to take the gospel outside of Jerusalem, to take the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. If you're here today and you're not a Jew, guess what? You are the nations. If it wasn't for this, you would not have heard about this. You would not know the gospel. You would not have access to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So it's really important for us. And it's also important for us, we know that at least Paul thought it was important, because it gets repeated again and again and again and again. Did you know that this is the first of three occurrences of this story in the book of Acts alone? Right here in Acts chapter 9, Paul is going to give this account again in Acts 22, he's going to do it again in Acts 26. He refers to this over and over and over again in his letters. This story was something that Paul talked about all the time. It was something that Paul remembered. It was something that shaped his whole perspective. And I think that's something that we need to learn from. The first thing I want us to see in verses 1 and 2 Is before Christ, before Christ, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, that's in Jerusalem and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. And so you've got Jerusalem with the temple there, and then you've got all these other places where Jews are living in scattered places in the world, and they have synagogues where they gather to worship. And so what Saul is doing here is he is asking permission from the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem to go to these synagogues and find Christians so that, in verse 2, If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Give me permission to go track them down. It's not good enough just to arrest them in Jerusalem. We need to go out into the world and find them and hunt them down and drag them back and hold them accountable. They need to be imprisoned. They need to be dead. So that's what Saul's doing. Now, everything we know about Saul so far can be seen in three verses in the book of Acts. You can probably flip back one page. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. When Stephen gets stoned, we learn so Stephen proclaims Christ, and everybody gets angry at Stephen, and they kill Stephen. And in verse 58, it says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then we go to chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And then we go to chapter 8, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this is what we know about him he hates christianity the the word in verse 3 that says saul was ravaging the church is that a word used for a wild beast devouring a dead body and that's what paul's doing he's animal-like in his hatred of christianity He's like a wild animal in his rage. He is controlled by zeal to stomp out the gospel. He hates it. He hates Christians. He has a reputation. We're going to learn in in chapter 9 for this. And yet, listen to me church, because this is glorious. This is the one that Jesus puts his finger on and says, that one. That's the one. That's the one I'm going to take and send to the nations. That's the one I intend to use to take my message of grace to the world. That one. This story of Paul's conversion has always resonated with me to this day. Some of y'all don't know this about me. Uh, To this day, I will get text messages from, I have a brother and a sister Uh, My sister's six years older than me. My brother's six years younger than me. And they both live in my hometown, Dothan, Alabama. And to this day, I will get text messages every so often from one of them saying, Hey, do you know so-and-so? And And I always know what's coming. Yes, I know them. I went to school with them. And then it's, I told them what you're doing, and they couldn't believe it. Okay, so this, this is just common. They meet somebody in my hometown, and they say, yes, do you know my brother? And, and my siblings say, or, or the person they're talking to say, yes, we know him. And they kind of probably look at them funny, like you're related to that guy. And then they say, yeah, he, he's a follower of Jesus. He's a pastor in Kentucky. And they faint. Now listen, I never persecuted the church. It wasn't like that. I grew up in the Bible Belt. I mean, they would have thrown me, cast me out if I persecuted the church. But I was probably least likely to be a Christian, much less a pastor, in just about any group I belonged to. That's my life. I don't, I don't really need to go into details. I, I don't share that with you, by the way, this morning because I'm proud of that. The only reason why that's worth talking about is because I want to boast in a God who saves sinners. It's not me that I'm proud of, by the way. And people say, oh, you should be so proud. I've had people say that. I think, no, it's not me. Listen to me. I was enslaved to sin. There is only one who can take a person like me, ransom them, and transform them, and save them, and fill them with hope. And that is the sovereign God of the universe through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross. Church, listen to me. One of the hardest things to grasp as a Christian is the reality that God doesn't see people the same way that we do. Do you know that? You know that your assumptions and your opinions about people, and when you look at somebody, you know how you see somebody, you probably see somebody, you see people all the time, and, and we begin drawing conclusions about them. Right? We begin thinking, oh, I bet that person's like this and like this, and that person's probably like this. And, and, and it's really hard to grasp that God doesn't see people like that. In the early 90s, there was a guy named Roy Ratcliffe. And Roy was a pastor out in Oklahoma. And Roy took it upon himself to go to a prison and visit a prisoner there who happened to be the most notorious serial killer in the world, a guy by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer. A guy who had murdered many people. He was also a pedophile and a cannibal. Jeffrey Dahmer was serving a life sentence in prison and Roy Ratcliffe decided that he wanted to go share the gospel with Jeffrey Dahmer. And over the course of a seven-month period, he met with him regularly, opened up the Bible, prayed with him, and shared the love of Jesus with the most notorious serial killer in the world. And Jeffrey Dahmer repented, believed, and was baptized. Ratcliffe said he went back, he wrote a book about it. Dahmer was later murdered in prison. Ratcliffe said he went back and he told his church what had happened, and one of his church members said, well, if he's in heaven, I don't want to be there. Church, listen to me you need to be really thankful that God doesn't look at people the same way that you do. Because if there is no place for Jeffrey Dahmer in heaven, there is no place for you. Jesus died to save sinners. You and me are sinners. Jeffrey Dahmer was a sinner. Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient enough to pay even for the sins of Jeffrey Dahmer. So, listen, when it comes to thinking about salvation and thinking about God's grace, one of the things, one of the ideas that we have to do away with is the idea of likelihood right? Because we, we like to size people up. We look at people and go, well, that person's never going to believe the gospel. Well, that person's not likely to believe the gospel. Well, the Bible tells us, church, that every single one of us is unlikely to believe the gospel because every single one of us is enslaved to sin. And that's exactly what's going on with Paul. Paul literally would have been the most like, unlikely person on earth to become a follower of Jesus. So if the notion of a serial killer or a persecutor of the church being redeemed and forgiven, if that notion bothers you, you need to recognize this morning that your problem is that you don't understand grace. You don't understand the Gospel. We want to help you do that this morning. So the second thing that I want us to see in this passage in verses 3 through 9 encountering Christ. So there's there's Saul before Christ and then in verse 3 something happens. And so let's read this section, verses 3 through 9. Look with me here. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Remember, he's on his way to persecute Christians, to take them back, to bring them before the high priest. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So here's what happens. Paul is going about his business. He is on a mission, and all of a sudden he is struck by divine lightning or something in verse three, he falls down to the ground and he hears an audible voice which turns out to be the voice of Jesus himself. And Jesus asks him, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, who are you? And he tells him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus gives his, him instructions on what to do. Rise and go into the city and I will meet you there and tell you what to do. And so Saul does that. And for three days he can't see he doesn't eat anything, he doesn't drink anything. And Jesus makes plans on what to do next. Now, here, here's what we tend to do. What we tend to do is we read a story like this in the Bible and we go, oh, that that is a miraculous thing. That is in a separate category. That is not something that we should ever expect to happen to us. And I I will tell you, I will admit that there are some things here that I don't know many people have experienced. I have never experienced being struck by divine lightning. I have never heard the audible voice of Jesus, though I would argue that I hear the voice of Jesus every single time I open up the Bible. But there are things here too, and this is the part I want us to focus on, there are aspects of what is happening to Saul that happen to every single person here if you've ever become a follower of Jesus. The first thing, if you are going to know Jesus, you have to have an encounter with Jesus. There is not a person who has ever been saved that did not have an encounter with Jesus, with the risen Savior of the universe. Now Paul, Saul meets him on a road and he hears an audible voice. Your access to him is through his spirit working through his word. You are hearing his voice every single time the word of God is taught. We're going to see in a little while that Saul repents and believes this gospel. We're going to see a little bit after that, that as soon as he repents and believes, he is called to a life of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are elements that are true of every single Christian. Saul's story is our story. You have an encounter with the risen, crucified, and risen Savior. You respond to the gospel through repentance and faith, and then he calls you to a life of serving him. That's just Christianity. But one of the things that this account makes abundantly clear for us is that a sinner's conversion is 100% the work of a sovereign God and His grace in our lives. 100%. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who tracks us down. He is the one who calls us. He is the one who pursues us. Now, we we use all kinds of language to describe this. We say things like, yeah, I I prayed to receive Jesus when I was 12, or I decided to follow Jesus when when I was 22, or I committed my life to Christ, or I was baptized, and we use that language, and that language isn't wrong, by the way. That language is getting at something that's essential, that we do have to respond. But I need you to understand something this morning, and this story makes it so clear. Before you can ever do that, there is a God who is showering you with grace. That song that we sang earlier, And Can It Be, there is a God who speaks light and and breaks the chains and the dungeons, and you are freed from your sin. Chains fell off my heart was free i rose went forth and followed thee we see this all over the bible we know this in john 6:44 i'm going to have a few verses pop up just to remind us john 6:44 no one can come to me unless the father draws him you see that church that's jesus saying emphatically undoubtedly You can't come to Me unless the Father draws you. John 15, 16, Jesus says this, You have not chosen Me, but I have chosen you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. When Saul was walking down the road to Damascus, he was not thinking, I am looking for Jesus to save me. He was thinking, I am looking for Jesus to destroy him. God had other plans. And then Saul keeps referring back to this throughout his whole entire ministry. And I want you to see this. Over and over again, this story becomes so powerful in Saul's mind, Paul's mind later, that he cannot get beyond it. But I want you to, talk, to, to notice how he talks about it every time. He refers to it in Galatians chapter 1. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Do you see what he's doing there? He is making it abundantly clear that he is not the one who initiated. This was a God who set him apart before he was born and called him by his grace. Philippians 3.12 Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see that? How did this happen? Jesus made me his own. Jesus found me as a rebel, as a persecutor, as a blasphemer. And that's the language that he's going to use later. I love this one, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And this isn't Paul talking about necessarily his own conversion, though it's included. This is Paul talking about what God's always doing. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is amazing, because what Paul's doing in this verse is he is pointing to creation. And he says, just like God came and he saw void and darkness, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. That is the same exact thing that happens when God encounters a sinner who is blind in his sin and dead spiritually. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You are not going to see the light unless God speaks, let light shine out of darkness. And then he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to to his service Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He came, He gave me strength, He judged me faithful, but before all that, He appointed me to His service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. What happened? his mercy. It's the only explanation for it. In this very passage, and I think this is so important, in verse 9, look at what it says there. And for three days Saul was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, why does it tell us that detail? You ever read the Bible and wonder that? Like, why is that detail there? Why does it last three days? I want you to think about this with me. Jesus comes, and he he strikes him blind, and for three days, he's living in darkness. He doesn't drink anything. He doesn't eat anything. What's going on? This is what Jesus always does, you see. When you come to Christ, you are joined to Jesus. Remember, we talk about this in baptism. When we are baptized, it represents being united to Christ by faith. We are baptized, we are joined to Jesus in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection. Church, let me ask you, how long was Jesus dead in the tomb? How long could Jesus didn't see anything? How long did His heart not beep? Saul is being crucified because Saul is about to be resurrected. He is being joined to Jesus. There is a connection to Jesus. And we see it in another important way in this passage as well. Verse 4. Don't you think it's interesting when Jesus comes to Saul? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul hasn't persecuted Jesus. Jesus is ascended at the right hand of God. Saul's not persecuting Jesus. Saul's persecuting followers of Jesus. That's the point. The church is his body. Paul is later going to write in, in Ephesians chapter 1 that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all that anything that happens to His people is happening to Jesus. Church, listen, we, if you are in Christ, you are so identified with Jesus that it's not only true that everything that's His belongs to you, but it is also true that everything that happens to you belongs to Him. So we we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Your death is my death. Your resurrection is my resurrection. Your inheritance is my inheritance. Your reign is my reign. Your righteousness is my righteousness. Everything that's true about you is now being given to me through faith in you. Your glory is my glory. And Jesus turns around and he looks at us and he says, your suffering is my suffering. Your sin is my sin. Your pain is my pain. Your sorrow is my sorrow. Your weakness is my weakness. I'm taking it all and I'm putting it upon my own shoulders even though I have not personally experienced it. Church, this is great news for us. Understand this. When when you as a Christian are harmed, Jesus, your Savior, takes it personally personally he identifies with us and that is why he looks at Saul and says why are you persecuting me Saul's persecuting the church he's persecuting Jesus you can't separate those things you can't separate the body from the head you can't understand Jesus in this time without understanding his relationship to his church At the very beginning of Acts, we we talked about how Jesus has ascended and then He sends His Spirit. All the things happening in the world for the past 2,000 years, it's not that Jesus has been absent, it's that Jesus has chosen a different way to work. Everything that happens through the church is Jesus working in the world right now. Through His body. The last thing I want us to see is with Christ verses 10 through 31. Look with me at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. That's what Saul's doing. He's he's just waiting, praying for three days. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now look at Ananias's response. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose. See that? See the language? Remember, for three days, he couldn't see, didn't eat, didn't drink. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Because now, he has been united by faith into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And no one can separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the story. Now, what, here's what I find so amazing about this. Jesus could have snapped his fingers and let Saul see again couldn't he have he didn't have to send ananias to do this what's amazing to me is that the first thing jesus does when he's got a convert is he points that convert towards the church that's what's going on saul has just now tasted the grace of god and jesus wants to make sure that the church is involved And so he appears to Ananias and he says, you go and help him. And that's the pattern. And and I hope you noticed in verse 17 what he says to him. Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul. Brother Saul? This man was probably responsible for the arrest of Ananias' friends. This man had a reputation for his violence and his hatred against Christians. And so Ananias, because of Jesus, because the gospel makes sense to Ananias, because Ananias himself has been saved by the grace of God, so he understands what's happening. So he understands that if God can save a sinner like Ananias, then God can save a sinner like Saul, even though Saul was formerly someone who hated people like me. And so Ananias is able on this testimony to walk into this house, to lay his hands on this murderer and say, you are forever now by brother because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is what the Gospel does to us, church. It takes people who were formerly at war with one another and it says, you're going to be family now. It takes groups of people who may have hated each other for generations and generations and generations and it says, you're all one in Jesus now. I read an article this week in The Atlantic, and the article was about this idea of toxic people. Have you ever heard of this? Have you heard of this before? This is very common language today. There's a lot of kind of pop psychology advice out there. If you're ever on like Instagram or TikTok or whatever the newest thing is, and what it is, is there's a lot of unqualified people out there who love to tell other people how to live, and for some reason, everybody likes to listen to them. And so there's this idea of, there, there's, there's categories of people, and some people are just toxic, and what that means is they're offensive. There's people out there, and if you hurt my feelings, that means that I can label you as a toxic person, and I now have permission to have nothing more to do with you ever again. You see how that works. So here's a couple quotes, and these are real memes on social media. There is no better self-care than cutting off people who are toxic for you. If you really want to care about yourself, anyone who's toxic, who you consider toxic, you can just cut them out of your life. It doesn't matter if they're your ex-husband or your husband or your, or your, your parents or a friend you've had your whole life or church members, if you're in the church and somebody hurts your feelings, if you really care about yourself, you'll leave. That person's toxic. Here's another quote. If I cut you off, chances are you handed me the scissors. I'm not responsible for it. You shouldn't have been mean. Shouldn't hurt my feelings. Somebody hurts your feelings, you have permission to get rid of them. That's the wisdom of this age, church. That's the world that we live in. And I want you to hear me this morning. There was no more toxic person on the earth than Saul of Tarsus. We're not talking about hurt feelings. We're talking about hurt people. We're talking about hurt bodies. We're talking about dead people. We're talking about people in prison. What we've got to understand is that because of the gospel, we no longer relate to other people according to the wisdom of the world, but we forever now relate to other people according to the wisdom of the gospel. All of our relationships are defined by Christ. We recognize that if there is any toxic person, it is me. And yet my toxicity did not prevent the God of this universe from pursuing me and seeking me and calling me and saving me and forgiving me and bringing me into this new family of other people who were formerly toxic. Paul's life is forever changed. He gets a new family. We see that in verses 18 and 19. Scales fall from his eyes. He's arose. He's baptized. He takes foods. He's strengthened. And then at the end, for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. He's with the disciples. He's with the church. Verse 26. And we, when he had come to Jerusalem, so he, he goes from there, from Damascus, and he enters into Jerusalem. And look at what he does first he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was disciple but barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the lord who spoke to him and how at damascus he had preached boldly in the name of jesus paul has a new family now he also has new habits We see that in verse 11. The first thing he does when Jesus encounters him and he goes to this house and he waits is it says that he prays. He's now praying in light of Jesus for the first time in his life. He he, he had prayed before, but he hadn't prayed in the name of Jesus. He didn't pray with full access to God. Now he does. But he also gets a new mission. And we see this all the way through. Verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. He is now risking his life to proclaim the gospel. And he continues wherever he goes. And you know the story of Paul. Most of our, much of our New Testament is written by him. Letters he wrote to churches. His life has been turned upside down. This man who was a persecutor now has a new heart. And not only does he have a new heart, he has a new family and he has new habits and he has a new mission. I met a guy this weekend who told me, he said to me, live music changed my life. I really like live music church. Those of you who know me, some of you poke fun at me, the kind of music that I like. And that's okay. But this guy was giving me a salvation testimony about live music and he and, and he was really getting into it. He said it's changed my life. My whole life's different now because I discovered live music and I go to concerts. And, and I don't doubt that. I'm sure that, that live music's helping him in many ways. But when we say Jesus changed my life, we're not saying it the same way he's saying live music changed my life. When we say Jesus changed my life, what we're saying is that there is no area of our life that has been left untouched by the gospel. If you come to Jesus, He doesn't just amend your behaviors. He reaches into the very core of who you are and He rips out your heart of stone and He replaces it with a heart of flesh so that you will live in obedience to Him. He takes hopeless people and He fills them with hope. He takes purposeless people and He fills them with mission and purpose. He changes everything. Paul's experience is a pretty good summary of the changes that Jesus always makes in the people that he saves. If you're here this morning and you know Christ, God intends for you to have all these things that Paul had. You should have a new family. You should have new habits. You should now have a new life mission. You don't go and get those things so that you can be saved. All those things come to you as a gift on the other side of grace. But I know, I know that there's probably people in this room right now that don't know Christ. For whatever reason, you've put this off. You've pushed them away. And if you're here today, listen, and you're even uncertain about that. My prayer, my prayer is that you would not wait another moment that you would put your faith in Jesus. We've been praying for you. We pray every single week that God would use the preaching of His Word to bring people into a genuine encounter with Jesus. So that the message, this isn't just words, this isn't just a guy up there talking for a few minutes on Sunday morning, but this is how God speaks to sinners, church. And if you are here today, and you have never repented and believed the Gospel, I am calling you today, repent and believe the Gospel. Jesus will save you. There is no one who has ever come to Christ in faith and asked Him to save them that He has turned His back on. And if you're here today, and you don't know the grace of God, and you don't have the assurance that your sins are forgiven, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you can know Him right now. Repent and believe. It's that simple. We would love to help you with that. To talk to you about that. After I pray in a moment, Dan and and the the music group is going to come back up and We're going to have a time of response, and we're going to have people available back at Next Steps. And if you're here today and you want to talk to someone about what it means to become a follower of Jesus the same way Saul became a follower of Jesus on the road to Damascus, we would love to talk to you. They will be back there during this response song. They will also be back there after the service is over if you would like to talk to someone then. But please, call out on Christ today. Let's pray together.